0: Good morning. This morning I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Morning, Arcadia. Oh, these are bad. Sorry, my name is Frank. For those of you who are new, I'm the teaching pastor here, one of the pastors. We are glad that you are here. Welcome. Had uh, a really humbling experience happen to me yesterday, uh, just kind of out of the blue. Um, I I teach uh, communication at Fuller Seminary, and um, I was uh, meeting with, planning to meet with one of my students at uh, the Starbucks up at Deer Valley. At 9:30, and when I walked in, my student, who is also a minister, was meeting with another guy, and uh, so I kind of hung out, waited for them to finish, and then when they stood up, uh, my student Joey turns and says, "Hey Frank, I want you to meet Alex. Uh, Alex kind of has a connection to your church," and I shook Alex's hands. Young, young guy, and uh, Alex said, "Yeah," he said. Uh, I was part of the original group that got Praxis in Tempe started, and I was a sophomore at ASU, and I know Justin very well, and uh, recently I've moved to Portland to take a job up there, and he said, but I understand you're the new pastor at the Arcadia campus, and he said, I want you to know that for months I was praying for you, and he said, and I don't—I—I I, I didn't know who I was praying for specifically or necessarily, but I was praying for you, for that position to be filled. And then you came, and since then, I have been praying specifically for you in Arcadia. And, and I'm telling you, um, have you ever had somebody that you don't even know just tell you that they've been praying for you? It is a humbling experience. And especially humbling in, in this context. And so I, I was just overcome. It was it was amazing to me. And, and immediately, of course, the way my mind works because I'm a type A academic and all that garbage, um, after I was overcome with humility, I started connecting it to uh, this story that we've been going through in Joseph and the idea that this is the faithful series and that God is always faithful to us no matter how difficult our circumstances are. And certainly, Joseph has been demonstrating that. And later on when we get into the book of Daniel, Daniel will demonstrate that as well. But um, I know for a fact, based on the stories that I've heard, uh, especially from the Arcadia congregation that this is a congregation that 's been around for two and a half years, and it seems like you 've had two and a half years of, of transition and um, you 've needed a lot of prayer and it 's interesting you should know that people not only in Arcadia but also in Tempe have been praying for you and have been lifting you up and that is a that is a sign of faithfulness that is a, uh, a wonderful, wonderful piece of encouragement I would hope it encouraged me I hope it encourages you and it also reminds us. Um, not only today in in trying to build faith communities like churches here, but also 4,000 years ago in Joseph's life that the sovereign power of God is what is really at work in the universe and is what is really in control in this universe. The same power that is with Joseph and leading him into the dungeon undeservedly, but then leading Him out of the dungeon. And I would say that just as undeservedly. That same sovereign power is the same sovereign power we find at the end of the Gospels that leads Jesus to the cross to the forgiveness of our sins and then three days later leads Him out of the tomb, the resurrected living Lord. It's the exact same power And it is the same power that lives in the church today. We are held, we are sustained, and we are built by the power of God. So we are in this series called Faithful. And we're looking these first four weeks at Joseph. We're in the third week. Uh, By the way, if you're following along in in Scripture, we're going to be in Genesis 42, 43, and 44 today. If you want to use one of the Bibles under the seats, uh, you can turn to page 23 and pick it up there. I'll give you as brief as I can a a synopsis of the story to this point. Uh, We pick up the story of Joseph when he's 17 years old. Uh, He's uh, the uh, second youngest of 12 brothers and he's the favorite of his father. And his father mishandles that badly. And God gives Joseph the, the... The the, the gift of dream interpretation and Joseph's first attempt at manifesting that gift, he handles badly, he handles poorly, he lords it over his brothers. Uh, His brothers respond badly and decide they want to kill him, but then in a moment of clarity, they decide that they shouldn't kill their brother, instead they should sell him into slavery. And so they do that, and Joseph gets taken to Egypt. And I will tell you, the brothers assume that that's the end of Joseph and he is dead, Uh, And certainly Joseph's father, Jacob, when they present him, the brothers, with this doctored um, uh, amazing technicolor dream coat, he makes the assumption that Joseph has been ripped apart by savage animals. And so Joseph is assumed dead, but he goes down to Egypt. And he goes to work for a man named Potiphar who is like the third, person, the third most important person in all of Egypt, which because Egypt was the only superpower at the time makes him the third most important person in all of the world. And Joseph rises up in Potiphar's household and becomes the lead slave on the inside after 11 years. And, and during this time, he's having great success even though he's a slave. Within his context, he has great success. But during this time, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph. He's young and good looking and, and and well built, Scripture tells us. And so she starts chasing after him because Potiphar is on a lot of business trips and there are times when there are no slaves, no servants in the house except for Joseph. Joseph, out of faithfulness not only to God but also to his earthly master Potiphar, continues to rebuff uh, Mrs. Potiphar in her advances. And finally, uh, it, that kind of comes to a culmination and And Ms. Potiphar makes a play and grabs for him and he runs and she's got his cloak and she makes up this story about how Joseph was actually chasing her, tells her husband. And so Potiphar now must do something about that. Could have executed Joseph, but instead sent him into prison. He goes down into the dungeon, a prison which, by the way, Potiphar is in charge of. And so Joseph spends a few years down there as well and he rises to the top down there as well, as high as you can rise in the dungeon portion of a prison. In the middle of that, he meets the chief uh, baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh, who had crossed Pharaoh badly, and he had sent them into prison. He interprets dreams for them. Both dreams come true. The cupbearer gets out and begins uh, to serve his master, Pharaoh, again. And and Joseph says, please remember me when you get out, because I really don't deserve to be down here. And if you have this connection with Pharaoh, maybe you can get me out of prison. Well, the the cupbearer forgot him. And for two more years, Joseph had to stay in prison. So now, this is now 13 years since he was sold into slavery. Joseph is 13, uh, 30 years old. And finally, Pharaoh has some dreams and he wants them interpreted. None of his dream guys can interpret these dreams. And so suddenly the, the cupbearer says, oh my goodness, I am reminded of my shortcomings. Literally, I am reminded that I have, now, I have sinned against Joseph Okay, because I have forgotten him. And he tells Pharaoh, there's this Hebrew guy down there in the dungeon. He can interpret these dreams. And Pharaoh says, well, get him up here. So he brings him up. He tells Joseph his dreams. Pharaoh interprets the dreams. And then Joseph takes a step of faith and and not only interprets the dreams, but he also um, suggests a plan to how to handle what's going to happen as a result of these dreams. Essentially, what the dreams told everybody was that uh, God was going to give the land of Egypt and all the surrounding land... 7 years of economic prosperity like they've never seen before but then it's going to be followed by 7 years of devastating famine like they have never seen before and the results of the famine are going to eat up all of the prosperity that they thought that they had and it's going to be devastating so joseph says i think you need to plan for that second 7 years and pharaoh says well who else do we have that is led by the Spirit of God like Joseph? Let's promote him to, and I call it, the grain czar. So now Joseph is the grain czar in Egypt. And if you read through the Scripture, you see that Pharaoh makes him the second most powerful person in Egypt. Only with respect to Pharaoh does, uh, does he have any um, uh, submission of his own authority. And so now he's in charge of all of Egypt, which means he's in charge of all of the world. Pharaoh even gives him his signet ring. And so he works the plan during the first seven years of prosperity. And during that seven years, he gathers uh, inventory of grain to save up for the second seven years of devastation. And uh, he also gets married, and he has two children, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And uh, life just kind of goes on for Joseph. And then at 20 years into Joseph's exile, so to speak, uh, Joseph is now 37 years old, the famine starts. And of course, we have a situation with this famine where the guys, the brothers, and Jacob, 200 miles away in Canaan, are looking around saying, we don't have any food, we're in trouble, and we hear that there's this guy in Egypt who has some grain that we might be able to go and buy some grain from him. So all of this story now is leading up to this moment of confrontation Unfortunately for us, this moment is going to take three chapters to play out. And that's what we're going to look at today. And today's theme is going to be testing because Joseph decides that he really needs to test these guys. So this is the story that we're going to go through today is is the testing of Joseph's brothers and the fact that um, they are going to uh, be reunited, so to speak. So starting in chapter 42, verses 1 and 5, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? This is a very sarcastic statement. He literally says to his sons, Why are you guys so lazy? Why are you just sitting around doing nothing? Why don't you make something of yourselves and go and actually do something? Any father here ever had that feeling about their son? My dad is here, so... And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Would you please go down there and buy some for us there that we may live and not die? I, th- there are so many little points of Scripture in this story that make me laugh just a little bit. You know, not only does Joseph, um, not only does Jacob want to live, but he doesn't want to die. I mean, this is, there's some force to this, Okay. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benj- Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared har- harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. A couple things here. The reason Jacob did not send Benjamin was because Benjamin was the only other son of his favorite wife, Rachel. He was the full brother of Joseph he had already lost joseph he does not want to lose benjamin now imagine what this makes these brothers these brothers feel like they were already upset at jacob's uh, favoring of joseph but now that, now they notice that they that he still favors benjamin in other words the other 10 brothers are kind of expendable keep benjamin here so they go trudging off to Egypt and understand they're going to have to get into line in order to buy grain. It's not like they're the only people coming to the grain to buy grain. They're going to get into line. And I want you to remember their assumption is that Joseph has been dead for 20 or 21 years. So they're not there looking for their brother that they sold into slavery. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Does anybody remember a couple of dreams in chapter 37 that Joseph had? See, the dreams do come true. And I'm telling you, Joseph recognized his brothers right off, although the brothers don't recognize Joseph. He recognizes them, and I'm sure he remembers those dreams. They are bowing down now to Joseph. And there had to have been just this flood of all these different emotions. He was elated to see his brothers, but he was kind of a little snarkiness in there going, there's those dreams coming true. I can't wait to tell them that. Okay. So uh, verse seven, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, and they said from the land of Canaan to buy food and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Okay, here you go. They're not looking for Joseph. They assume he's been dead for 20 or 21 years. And Joseph now has been fully uh, immersed in Egyptian culture, which is quite different than Hebrew culture. So he's dressing like an Egyptian. He's talking like an Egyptian. Dare I say, he walks like an Egyptian. And so they can't recognize Joseph at all. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to, uh, to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, to see where we are unprotected and you might be able to attack us because we're the ones that were smart enough to accumulate some food inventory. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one men. Here you go. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now Joseph hears this line, we are honest men. And that must have cut him right to the heart. Wouldn't you agree that that would have been a little bit difficult for him to hear? Because he knows just how dishonest, the most dishonest act that they ever committed, Joseph was in fact the victim of. And so verse 12, he said to them, no, no. It is the nakedness of the land, the unprotected parts of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We are your servants. We are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. That's the best memory that they can give of their brother Joseph that they sold into slavery. And one of our brothers is no more. That's not the. I would not imagine that anybody would want that printed on their headstone, okay? But that is essentially what they have printed on Joseph's headstone. He is no more. And I'm sure that the reason they said it like that is because they are filled with guilt uh, about this particular situation. So, Joseph is speaking harshly to them, but he wants to test them because he wants to see if maybe over the last 20 or 21 years their hearts have. Perhaps softened and changed, and so far not really. So he decides that he makes to make them a deal. He wants to see his baby brother Benjamin. He's distressed and upset that Benjamin is not on this trip with them. So he says to them, Here's what I'm gonna do for you. I am certain that you are spies coming to spy out the land. I'll sell you your grain, and you can take your grain back to your father, but you are going to have to leave one of your brothers here as collateral. You're going to go home, drop off your grain, you're going to collect your youngest brother, and you're going to bring him back here to me as a demonstration of good faith and as a demonstration that you are not lying to me about being, a, uh, a being spies in the land. I want to know that you're honest. Okay? Now, the brothers hear this. They hear that this guy who has all this power that they don't know is their brother Joseph. He wants to see Benjamin, and they are very distressed at this because they know that Jacob is never going to allow Benjamin to be sent down to this guy. There's no way. And so they begin to brainstorm why this terrible dilemma has happened to them. Now understand, here's the setting. Uh, Joseph is speaking Egyptian to them, there's an interpreter there the interpreter is changing it into hebrew so that the brothers will understand and the brothers are speaking hebrew back to the interpreter and the so joseph's going through this whole charade in order to keep his identity secret okay so as far as the brothers know joseph cannot understand anything that they're saying so joseph proposes this plan to them about bringing benjamin back up and they begin to debate this dilemma and they begin to ask these questions Why is it that this is happening to us? Why has this grief come upon us? Have you ever done that? I'm somebody who does that quite often. When I get into a tough spot, even though I know cognitively that life is going to present trials and tribulation and suffering, I do that when I get into tough life spots. Trials, tribulation, suffering, unexpected difficulties. I'll begin to ask, why is my health going south? Why did this business deal go south? Why are my relationships heading south? Why has Baskin-Robbins run out of Jamocha Ammon Fudge? Why, God, why are all these terrible things happening to me? And they come to an interesting conclusion. Listen to their conclusion, verse 21 and 22. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They're talking about Joseph 20 years earlier. Do you understand that the guilt of what they did to Joseph has plagued them so much for 20 years that every time something bad happens to them, this is the type of conversation they're going to have. This is why confession is good for us, by the way. And then look at verse 22. There's always a Reuben in every crowd. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you would not listen. Nanny, nanny, foo, foo. I told you so. Well, a lot of good that's doing us right now, Reuben. Could you just get with the program and help us figure this out? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So Reuben's saying we're going to have to pay for this one way or another. But understand, if these guys had just and I know it's tough. I know how hard it is to confess sin. But if they had just confessed this sin, if they had owned up to it, they would not be feeling this guilt right now. God calls us to confess our sin. Literally, the biblical term means to agree with God that we have sinned. It's not like God sitting in heaven waiting for us to confess because He doesn't know that we have sinned. He's just waiting for us to agree with Him. But it's also we are also called to confess our sin to each other. And the reason we're called to do that is because that makes it real, that makes it uh, so that we can start to deal with it, and that tends to put it behind us. This sin, which was committed at least 20 years earlier, is still right in front of these brothers, and they are having to deal with it. So, Joseph hears this conversation. He hears them going over this, and he speaks Hebrew, okay? And so he hears this and he decides, I've got to leave because I'm going to cry. And he leaves the room and he has a good cry. And here's, here's why Joseph is weeping at listening to this conversation. Joseph is not weeping over his own pain. He's been grieving and mourning his own pain for a number of years. Instead, what he sees... For the very first time in 20 years, he sees the pain that his brother's sins have caused them. And he is distressed and grieving and weeping over their pain, not his. And, and, and you would think, well, why does he just go out there and tell them to get with the program? It's because he wants God to work in their hearts, not him. He wants the Spirit of God to do this work and not him. So back to the plan. Somehow they decide that Simeon is going to be the brother that's taken as collateral. I'm sure Simeon was very excited about that. He's thrown into a prison cell. They head back home. And then Joseph does something odd. He orders that the bags that these guys brought not only be filled with their grain, but also that their money be put back into their bags. And he does this on the QT. Okay? And then look at verses 26-28. through 28. So they're heading back to home, and they stopped... Uh, I'm sorry, they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed, and they're heading back home. And then they stopped, and as one of them opened his sack to give donkey, his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And his, at, at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to this? Isn't it interesting? They, they have caused all of this grief. They have caused all of this trouble. And they're looking around for somebody to blame still. What is this that God has done to us? I, again, we're the same way. In the book of James, James even talks about how we will look to blame God for our own shortcomings from time to time. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. They're the ones to blame for all of this trouble coming on them. Yet they are blaming God in the midst of this. And they're rightfully worried that they have, uh, it appears as though they have stolen money from the grain czar. It's kind of like, you know, you may, be, you may have done your income taxes absolutely perfectly and followed every rule, but you still hate to get audited, right? Because you're worried they're going to find something that you missed. Well, they kind of feel that way. We didn't put the money back in our sacks, but it's not going to look that way to the grain czar. He's going to figure that we are guilty anyway. So they get home, they tell Jacob everything, but they tell it from their perspective with their biases. In other words, they tell Jacob the story from a victim standpoint, and then Jacob begins to play the victim. So Jacob hears that Simeon got held back. And so here's how Jacob sums everything up. So Jacob's thinking about the last 20 years as well. He says, you guys have cost me Joseph. You guys have now cost me Simeon and now you guys are asking me to let Benjamin go, and I know that if I send Benjamin, he's never going to come back, so you guys want me to lose Benjamin as well. You guys are all against me, Jacob says. He says, there's no way I'm sending Benjamin. Put the grain away. Put the money away. We're just going to live as long as we can on this grain. And so the guys say, okay. Now Reuben steps in and, and just tries once. He says, look, I'll tell you what, Dad. Uh, let me handle this, and Jacob says, "Forget it. Just we're not sending Benjamin at all." Well, another year passes, and the famine persists, and and, and I'm guessing that Joseph is looking at Simeon. It's only 200 miles to Canaan, okay? So it's a it's a week long trip, maybe at most, okay? And he and Joseph's probably looking at Simeon, going, "I guess I get to keep Simeon forever now, because they're not coming back for Simeon, all right." And a year passes and they've run out of the grain. And so now Jacob's sitting there looking at his brothers, sitting around doing nothing again. And he very delicately, very gently, very casually says, why don't you guys go down to Egypt and buy a little more grain? And the brothers explode. "See, Dad, don't you remember the deal that the grains are made? He said he will never see us again unless we bring Benjamin back. And Jacob says, why have you brought all of this shame and destruction onto me? Why have you got... He's still blaming his sons. Why have you done this to me? And then Judah steps up. And Judah says, I'll tell you what, Dad. Put Benjamin in my charge. We're going to all take Benjamin down there. I personally guarantee Benjamin's safe return." It's the only way that you're ever going to get any grain. It's the only way that we're going to be able to survive this thing. And so, look at verses uh, chapter 43, verses 11 through 14. After Judah has made his plea, then their father Israel, Jacob, said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to this man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Let me kind of explain that. All of the the merchandise that was just mentioned is not merchandise that's going to buy more grain. It's a sign of honor and respect for the grain czar. They are taking things that are important in their culture and presenting them as a present to the grain czar to kind of smooth things over. They're also going to bring him all of their money as well in order to buy grain. And then he says, take double the money with you. In other words, take the money that was put back into your sacks as well as new money. So take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother, um, your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Can you hear the total resignation in Jacob's attitude and voice there? Jacob fought, 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 fought the reality, the truth, that he was going to eventually have to submit to the will of the grain czar and send Benjamin. He didn't want to do it. Finally, he realizes he's backed into a corner. He has no other choice. He is resigned to do that. Total resignation to the fact that he cannot control life's circumstances. Okay, here you go. You and I have those feelings as well. We run into those times when we have to totally resign ourselves to the fact that we cannot control life circumstances. Here's the good news though. God is in control of our life circumstances. He either causes or allows all things to happen. And so if we submit ourselves to Him, even though it's going to be hard sometimes, at least we know that things are not out of control. They are within His control. They're out of our control but they are within His control and for His good and sovereign purpose, He's going to figure out how to make it work. And it may be painful and time-consuming for us for a while, but understand we serve a faithful and sovereign God in the midst of this. And so they head back to see Joseph. And look at verses 16-18. through When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, his his, uh, executive assistant, He said, "...bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with Me at noon." That would be a tremendous honor that they were being invited to dinner with the grain czar, the second most powerful person in the world. "...the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house." And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, so the brothers are afraid that they're being brought to Joseph's house, the grain czar's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks for the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkeys. Again, I'm sorry, there's another one of those little funny verses. Those must have been some really nice donkeys if they were worried about them being seized. You ever seen a donkey that nice that somebody would want to seize it? Okay. Well, there you go. They're worried about their donkeys. But again, this is, this is really interesting. The guilt continues. Joseph is trying to bless them by inviting them into his home for dinner. And you know, this is going to be a really nice dinner. He's sending out for postinos. He's not sending out for Jack in the box. Okay. And yet they look at this blessing and they see it as a curse. Again, that's what guilt will do to us. That's what unrepentant sin, unconfessed sin can do to us. It brings this guilt on us and it, and, it, and it makes us look at life in a particular way that we can't even capitalize on the blessings that God wants to give us in our lives. And so they go and they see that they're preparing for the meal and so they go away and they go and they grab Joseph Stewart, the executive assistant, and they said, hey, 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 you know We're worried that we're going to go in there and He's going to overpower us and take our donkeys because you can see they're really nice donkeys. And, and we're worried about this now. And, and I want you to know that we're really good men. And and we understand that we, we, we found this money in our sacks. We don't know how it got there. We're honest men. We didn't do that. And we brought the money back. Look, look, we have double the money and we have some pistachio nuts for you. We are good and honest men. And the steward looks at them and says, hey, forget about it. It's okay. We got our money. And then the steward says this. He says, God must have put the money back into your sacks. I, that just cracks me up. The, the steward is Egyptian. And he's, it's like he's got more faith in Israel's God, Yahweh, than the Israelites do. Okay? So there's a little bit of irony in, in that regard. And so then after they have this conversation, the executive assistant goes and gets Simeon, brings him out, and they head to lunch. And by the way, Simeon must have said to the guys, what took you so long, okay? It's about time. And so they go to lunch or dinner or whatever it is. Look at verses 26 and 27. When Joseph came home, they they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them. So that's the nuts and the gum and all that stuff. And they bowed down to him, Uh, to him uh, to the ground. So here they are bowing to Joseph again. So there's that dream again. And he inquired about their welfare and he said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still uh, alive? So what Joseph is trying to do is he's trying to reconnect with his brothers, but he's trying to do it on terms that help him to understand that his brothers recognize their sin and that God has changed their hearts. And that really hasn't happened yet. And so they tell Joseph about their dad. They say he's fine, he's alive. They present Benjamin to him. Joseph greets Benjamin, but then again he's overcome with emotion. He can't handle it. He runs out of the room again and he goes and he cries again. He weeps again. So this is the second time now that Joseph leaves the situation to go and have a good cry. So he has his cry, washes his face, he comes back out, and the attendants serve the meal. And a couple of interesting things happen at the meal. First of all, the Egyptians, without asking any questions, they grab the brothers and they sit them down at the table in order of their birth. Okay, That's got to freak them out. And it does. Scripture says that the brothers are looking at each other saying, how do they know in what order all of us were born how do they know that so they were a little freak so joseph just keeps kinda keeping them off balance with these little things and then he starts to serve the meal and i'm going to use this hypothetically what he does with the meal is this let's say they barbecued some hamburgers okay each brother got a hamburger a scoop of beans a scoop of coleslaw and a glass of lemonade okay one hamburger one scoop one scoop one glass of lemonade they get down to benjamin the last brother and he gets five hamburgers, five scoops of beans, five scoops of coleslaw and a pitcher of lemonade. He gives him five times the amount of food that he gives all the other brothers. This is a sign of honor. Now, I don't know about you. I go to a lot of barbecues. I like barbecues, hamburgers and brats. Those are really good things. And I will tell you that on most occasions I will have not one hamburger, but I will have two. I have never had five hamburgers, okay? But that is essentially the amount of food that they serve uh, Benjamin. I have no idea how Benjamin is going to be able to eat all of this food. Anyway, they have this nice meal together and then yet another test. They're getting ready to leave. Joseph goes to his attendant. He says, I want you to fill their sacks up again with as much grain as they can handle. Put all the money back into the sacks again. And then I want you to take my special silver cup and I want you to put that in Benjamin's bag, okay? The the last brother's bag. And so they do that all on the QT. They send the the, the brothers on their way. And they've been traveling for a couple of hours and they're heading out and they feel like, we got out of there. We even got Simeon and Benjamin. Everything's going to be fine. Jacob's going to be so happy. For the first time in 100 years, Jacob's going to be happy with us, okay? Well, then Joseph sends his executive assistant after these guys, sends them out there to stop them and accuse them of taking the silver cup that they had planted in the bag of Benjamin. And so he rides out there, he stops these guys, and he immediately accuses them. He says, listen, we were very good to you. Why have you repaid good with evil? And of course, the, the reaction of the brothers, this, this is such drama, such good drama if you read it. The reaction of the brothers is, what are you talking about? We are good men. We are honest men. We brought back the money that we, that we had from the last time. We brought you double of the money. We would never do such a thing. We would never disrespect your boss this way. Are you kidding me? And then they said this. They said, listen, we're so sure of our innocence that if you, you can search all of our bags, we, you don't even have to read us our Miranda rights. You can search all of our bags and if you find that cup in anybody's bag, you can execute the guy that you find it, the cup in his bag and the rest of us will return and your master will be allowed to use us as slaves for the rest of our lives. That's the deal. Now. Let me ask you, I know we're in church, so just cut me a little slack here, but it's a perfect illustration, I think. for those of You don't have to raise your hand. For those of you who have played poker in the past, have you ever gotten that seemingly perfect hand? Like four kings? It's an unbeatable hand, almost. And so you go all in. You do that thing that you see in movies. You push all of your chips into the pile in the middle. And then you lose. Somebody else has got four aces. That's exactly what happens to the brothers. They go all in on this. The guy starts checking the bags from the oldest to the youngest. And with each bag he checks, they're getting more and more confident. And then they get to Benjamin's and he pulls the cup out of Benjamin's bag. And he says, listen, I'm not going to execute this guy. Instead, we're all going to go back and talk to the grain czar and see what he has in store for us. And, And let me tell you something. At this point the brothers would much rather go back and be the slaves of the grain czar than have to go back and tell Jacob, guess what, Dad? We lost Benjamin too. There's no way they want to go back and talk to Benjamin. Okay, So they all head back to Joseph's. Look at verses 14-17 through 17 of chapter 44. When Judah and his brothers, now it's interesting that Judah's not the oldest, but now he's kind of seen as the the leader of the group. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground, so they bowed down to him once again. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. Now understand, God has found out the guilt of your servants. They are going all the way back to 20 years earlier. 21 years now at this point. They're going all the way back to that guilt of selling Joseph into slavery. They are talking about that guilt to the very person that they victimized in that guilt. There's all kinds of irony here in regard to this. Uh, so, uh, how can we clear ourselves? God is found at the guilt of our servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me, I should do so. Only the man in whose, cu- uh, whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, you guys can go in peace to your father. So here's what Joseph's doing. He's saying, you guys can all go back to Jacob. You know, knowing full well that they don't want to go back to Jacob and say, well, we brought Simeon back, but Benjamin's not with us. Okay? So he knows that this is not going to be good. So here we are. This is the come to Jesus moment for the brothers. And who steps up? It's Judah. And these next several verses is the longest continuous speech by any person in the entire book of Genesis. Genesis. And it is a magnificent speech. And it is Judah who steps up. He is fresh off of his humiliating experience with Tamar where he is exposed as a low-down, just evil sinner and recognizes his unrighteousness and actually has a day of repentance where he turns back to God And now he is feeling the faithfulness. He is feeling like he needs to be the guy to be God's man in God's time in God's situation. And he steps up and he becomes in effect a Christ figure in this story. Listen to this speech. Then Judah went up to Joseph and he said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. So he's He's setting him up. He's, this is very common. I need to pay you some respect before I tell you my case. Okay? My Lord asked His servants, saying, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left on, uh, of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, that would be Joseph, you. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we can't go down there. Our youngest, if our younger, youngest brother go, uh, goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see this man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. They're talking about Joseph there. Joseph just must have been... The pain must have been deep. Um, One left me. Surely he's been torn to pieces. If you take this one from me also and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. In other words, he will die in distress. Now therefore please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my lord and let the boy go back with his brothers for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me I fear to see the evil that that would find my father Here is what J- Judah essentially says to Joseph the grains are he says listen I'm going to hang on the cross in place of my brother Benjamin and in place of the rest of my brothers. That's essentially what he's saying. He's saying you can take me and do whatever you want with me as long as it expunges the guilt and the sin of all of my brothers, including Benjamin, and sets them free and gives them life. So in that sense, he becomes a Christ figure in this story. So he's given this speech, and this is a moment of truth. How will Joseph, the Grainsar, respond? Well, we're going to look at that next week, but I want to end with a couple of points here that we've been kind of hammering away at, uh, not only this morning, but in the last couple of weeks. First of all, I want to return to this idea of repentance and forgiveness. We're going to spend a lot of time next week talking about forgiveness. But in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says this, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. I'm just setting that up a little bit for next week because there is going to be a tremendous amount of forgiveness that takes place in the story next week. But then also in Romans chapter 2, Paul writes this, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness, God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impetinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's what Paul is saying in Romans eight, Romans chapter two, and it relates to this story. Joseph is being very nice and very good to his brothers, but at the same time, he's not letting them get away with anything. He is, in effect, confronting them in their sin, but he's doing it in kindness. The brothers all see it as harshness, but in reality, it's kindness. And this kindness that Joseph is showing them is meant to help inspire a heart of repentance in these guys. And the moment of truth is whether or not they will finally repent of their sin or whether or not they will go ahead and just take their sin to their grave with them. Judah's speech that he just gave is the speech of repentance. It's the speech that Joseph was waiting to hear. It was the demonstration that Joseph was waiting to see in the life of his brothers that God had indeed worked in his brothers' hearts and that they were changing their minds about this sin. They knew the sin was bad, but they were willing to finally open it up and talk about it. And we're going to look at that a little bit next week. One other point though, and I want to go back to this again. I've said this the first two weeks. God's stories take a long time. They really do. Again, I'll just just hammer away on this. You and I want God to work like that in our lives. We want to see resolution right away. But He takes some time to work on things. He takes weeks, months, years, decades. Sometimes in our own lives, we we don't even see the end of God's purpose. And I know that's very difficult. But I want to encourage you in this that even though it took Joseph 21 years to finally get to see his brothers again and have this confrontation, it did happen. And all along the way, God had to set this up so that Joseph would be fully prepared for this confrontation. See, Joseph wasn't ready when he was 19 or 22 or 25 or even 27 or 29 to serve Pharaoh the way he needed to serve him and to be able to handle his brothers the way he needed to be able to handle them. It took this long to prepare Joseph, 21 years for this moment. I have a very, very good... Jackie and I, our family has a very good friend named Chris. He's married to a woman named Lisa. It's the first couple I ever married as a minister. I actually married them in Las Vegas, but it was done in a church, not a chapel on the strip. Uh, I married them, I don't know, 14 years ago. Chris and I went to seminary together, and in fact, we uh, went to uh, all of our classes in Pasadena together. We would drive back and forth every week to Pasadena uh, together. And I remember 12 years ago, he began to unpack for me that he felt that God was calling him to become a minister... In the war-torn parts of Africa where the Diamond Wars had literally torn apart the nations and had, and had resulted in the amputation and, uh, of many of the, uh, of the people who lived in Africa. Specifically, he felt he was being called to Sierra Leone to plant a church and to eventually build a clinic and a hospital and he felt this call on his life so strongly that he began to build his entire life around this and when he and Lisa got married she knew that she was marrying into a situation where she would eventually the plan was eventually that they would live in Sierra Leone they weren't going to go there for 2 weeks they were going to go and live there and, and and i've watched over the last 12 years chris get so excited about this and and every time he gets excited god says not yet not yet God would continue to close the doors on this, not yet. And Chris would agonize and say, you've called me to do this, but you keep closing doors. He's not really closing doors. He's just preparing him. So Chris went to work for a church for a little while. Then he felt God calling him uh, to work on his Ph.D. in theology. He went to St. Andrews, Scotland, worked on his Ph.D., got a Ph.D. uh, in New Testament theology, went over there with his wife. They had three kids while they were over there. They were there for six years. He got his Ph.D. in New Testament theology, and all the time he's going, how does a Ph.D. in New Testament theology help me minister to people with, with arms that are cut off in Africa? He comes back here and they start an organization where they're gonna, they're gonna, they want to go and plant a church in Africa. And, and that has some fits and starts. It kind of sputters along, but there's also times when he's encouraged. I invited him at my uh, old church to come and preach one Sunday. And, and absolutely, this was not part of the plan. It was an amazing thing that God did, but it was not part of the plan. He preached his vision for planting a church in Sierra Leone. And that day, in the offering plate, were five diamond rings that people had just placed in the offering plate because they felt so convicted about the ministry that he was going to do for these people who had lost limbs because of the diamond wars there. Essentially saying, here, we're giving you some seed money to be able to do this. But again, just the months and the years went by, fits and starts. So finally, a couple of months ago, Chris resigned himself to the fact that he was probably not going to be able to do this vision to realize this calling, and so he started to look for a job in the United States where he would just use his Ph.D. And as he's on his online search, he discovers a large American church that has determined that they want to plant a church in Freetown, Sierra Leone, and they are looking for applicants for somebody to do that. So Chris said to Lisa, do you think I ought to apply? (laughs) Just kidding. He didn't say that. He applied right away. And we had dinner with Chris and Lisa just a couple of weeks ago. They are far down this process now. He is the leading candidate. And we believe that by September, he he and his family will actually be living in Sierra Leone, Freetown, planting a church there. But I want you to understand this. Twelve years. From the time He was called to the time that maybe God is going to make this a reality. Twelve years. So, I'm calling you to be patient. I'm calling you to understand that for twelve years, you're going to have to do as Christ did, march that long journey to the cross getting beat up all the way, but in the end, God is going to have His say. Jesus goes to the cross after 33 years and everybody thinks it's over, but then three days later, He comes busting out of that grave under the power of the sovereign God, the resurrection power, He comes busting out of that grave and achieves victory. You may be in that season in your life right now where it's five years, it's ten years, it's fifteen years, And I'm just imploring you to have faith at some point, God's stories will work out. I can't guarantee you when or how or what it will look like. But I can tell you that God's stories work out. And the ultimate God's story is the story of Jesus on the cross rising to life to give us life three days later. Let's pray together as the band comes to lead us into um, reflection. God, thank You for Your power. Thank You for what You do in our lives. We pray that You would just give us patience, that You would help us to be the people You want us to be even when things aren't going well, that we would be faithful and that we would continue to look at Your Son on the cross and Your Son resurrected from the grave to give us power and hope and encouragement. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.